Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. Today, I welcome Paul Dalgano. Born in Scotland and immigrated to Australia in 2010. In Scotland, he was a senior features writer. In Melbourne, he was a launch editor, deputy editor, arts editor, and science editor of the Conversation website. Paul has written for many Australian publications, and Polly is his debut novel. Polly is a searing and utterly engrossing debut. It's raw, hilarious, and a moving portrait of contemporary relationships in all their diversity, and an intimate exploration of the fragility of love and identity. Danny, Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction went, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions, engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like having many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, <laughs> Thanks, well Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I can edit that bit out. I can do this, and I was just so comfortable that I was like, this is special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast, Paul Dalgano. How are you? I'm good, thank you, Danny. How are you going? Well, and I'm really excited to chat about your book, Polly. It was such a great read. It was beautifully written and such an intriguing story. And for people who haven't got their hands on Polly yet, can you give us an elevator pitch as to what this book is about? Yeah, it's about a couple um, who have young children, uh, five and seven years old, and um, for slightly different reasons, they decide to open their marriage. They don't have much of an idea what that's going to look like. They certainly haven't done the type of research they probably should have before <laughs> before doing it. Um, so it's really their story, plus um, a, a kind of love story that goes along with that, with the husband and uh, a woman he falls in love with. And um, it's all it's all essentially presented from an internal monologue by the protagonist Chris Flood so um, essentially it's pretty much psychological or 100% psychological given it's it's we're, we're perceiving what's happening through Chris's um, potentially flawed potentially clear-eyed view of what's happening <laughs> from his perspective yes and that's actually one of the things I really liked about it it was a real monologue and 
I noticed your use of ellipses and, you know, dashes of, of thoughts being interrupted or cut out. And it, for me, it just really reflected what thoughts are like, because if you actually recorded all your thoughts that you had in one day, you'd never finish a sentence, right? So I really liked that style. Was that always the way you were writing this book or did this come later in the process? Um, I think it's pretty similar to other writing I've done before, to be honest. Um, I, I really, um, I, I can see a bit of a line through all of my writing. So to, to me, it doesn't look like I've, I've tried a particularly new style with it. But yeah, certainly that idea of breaking up thoughts and thoughts crashing in on other thoughts. Um, I, I can't, uh, you know, I think it was maybe last year. I mean, this year's felt like three, obviously. So at, at some point there was a, a chat that happened online about people who think in full sentences and people who don't. And there was all, all these, um, you know, really interesting responses with people saying, you know, what do you mean you don't think in full sentences? So there's this kind of idea that basically for some of us, um, we, we kind of think almost in narrative and uh, wow. for some of us, we don't. Um, in my case, personally, I don't. I, I, I don't think I ever think full sentences. It's just a jumble of impressions usually. Yeah. Um, but, Sometimes yeah. I don't talk in full sentences, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's, that, that's also a kind of divide between most of us. <laughs> no, I just found that I just really enjoyed that sort of writing style because I guess I'm one of those people who don't finish, this, finish sentences in my brain and I actually thought no one did, but there's this whole host of people who do apparently. <laughs> um, and for me, it was easier to get into Chris's head, I think, because you're not just interrupted by different thoughts, you're interrupted by life, particularly when you have a domestic life and you have little kids and you have a wife and you have all these things going on. You're constantly interrupted and you're rarely alone with your thoughts. So I really like that style of, you know, being um, swept up in life but still having all these thoughts in your head because that's, that's how we operate every day. Yeah, thank, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it's, it's always a bit of a punt, isn't it? I mean, people could just be like, what the hell? It's <laughs> how somebody, somebody's brain works. Um, I, I find, as a reader, I love um, internal monologues for, for, a sim for a similar reason to the one I think you've just outlined, which is um, I, I find it really consoling uh, to read a good inner monologue, um, particularly one that's not, um, you know, that doesn't feel like it like it's written but it's simply because we we don't think or i don't think you know <laughs> say divide but uh, a, a lot of us let's say don't think in kind of full sentences so when it's an internal monologue and it ref there are things obviously literary things happening there's repetition and you know there's a voice and a tone and things being built up in a way that doesn't happen in your own head but um i love reading that when it's executed in, in that way where you're kind of taking something that doesn't work in writing but you mimic or somehow get the feel of the kind of things that go on inside somebody's head. I really like the word consoling and you've just said that and I was thinking about it and I think yeah maybe maybe that's the word and maybe it is because you know we've established that we think in that way maybe I'd, I'd be very interested to hear from someone who who does think in full sentences to see if it was consoling for them or they, they thought of it in a different way like what is this person not finishing their sentences <laughs> now as we establish the book delves into polyamory the practice of engaging in multiple romantic and sexual relationships I wanted to ask you, because I was very intrigued about, you know, this kind of lifestyle. What was it about polyamory that intrigued you as a writer or a human being? Oh, so in, in real life, my wife and I opened our relationship um, a number of years ago. So um, that for that reason, it was very much, very much on my mind. And, um, you know, it became 
it's super apparent super quickly that there aren't that many narratives to turn to. And what there is tends to be nonfiction. And, you know, you get these kind of, uh, you know, very loved by a lot of people, guidebooks, essentially. They're generally American. More Than Two is a famous one, The Ethical Slut. Um, in, in Australia, as, as I've said a lot of times recently, and will continue to say, Lee Kaufman wrote an amazing book called The Dangerous Bride, which was a, a nonfiction a memoir blend looking at cultural practice of non-monogamy. But there's not really that much there. And the, the few things that have crept up have crept up quite recently um, on TV, you know, shows like Wonderlust or You, Me, Her. So it's, it's kind of starting to become a, a bit of a narrative that we see. And I think like um, like lots of relationships that traditionally weren't portrayed, gay, gay relationships come to mind in their first iteration as they appear on TV. They, they appear and they, they stick out like a sore thumb, you know, it's kind of oh, okay, you're showing a gay character and they're behaving in this stereotypical way that we're comfortable with from the 1970s as opposed to a more evolved, you know, they're just people who happen to be gay or they're just people who happen to be single or whatever whatever the kind of, whatever the parameter is. Anyway, um, realizing that there weren't any stories, uh, I wouldn't say not any, but not many that I could hold on to and even um, just to get a kind of idea of what the version of happy ever after is or not happy ever after uh, because that wasn't there. I just wanted to write it myself. Mm, no, it is really interesting. And you're right. I, I can't think of many or any examples off the top of my head. And I think that's why I found it so intriguing as well. Now the book is though, it's more than just an exploration of polyamory. It really is an examination of marriage and the evolution of marriage. When you have children heading towards your forties and whether marriage can ever meet the expectations you have when you walk down the aisle 20 years later, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, late, lately when I've been going for walks or whatever, I've been listening to a lot of Esther Peril. Um, not, not so much her, I know she does a program where it's, you know, couples and therapy, but more interviews with her. And I'm really fascinated by her for, for all sorts of reasons, um, including just her elocution and the way she lays out her arguments. Um, but she's got really fascinating insights on these kind of topics. And so, for, for example, when she's talking about polyamory in an interview I listened to, she talks about the, the kind of evolution from, you know, one partner for life, which, you know, I guess our parents or our grandparents would aspire to that or that would be the obvious kind of life choice to make, to the fact that these days for a, a lot of us secular people, having um, a number of partners before you meet your kind of life partner is, is considered kind of normal and, you know, something that lots of people do. And she kind of says in a way that's a form of polyamory if you look at it. So it's, it's not running concurrently, you know, it's more mm. like a serial monogamy trend. That's yeah, interesting. These, these kind of patterns uh, are morphing and kind of changing as, as we go, I think. Mm, that is fascinating. I'm so fascinated by the topic of polyamory and marriage itself and relationships because, you know, I have read things about biology saying that biologically human beings are only sort of biologically attached to a person for 18 months to give you enough time to procreate. And then that's sort of when the romance dies, <laughs> how romantic. <laughs> and then, you know, you've got, like you say, this social structure that really strives for that life partner. And the two of them, they collide, don't they? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the thing is, we're talking about like a village of people in the past um, in terms of how many people would have provided the things we expect or we're, we're kind of 
told to expect or we just inherently expect of our life partners. So, um, you know, the, the obvious things, you know, somebody that's really into you, they think you're funny, all the things that happen right at the start, you want that to continue, but you also want the person to just do the hard yards and turn up and do the work and, you know, you clean each other's socks and the, the whole <laughs> earthy, messy, boring thing, you, you kind of need that too. And it's actually like really grounding and a, a really beautiful thing to, to give to another human as well. But it's when all of those things collide, it becomes really difficult. And um, yeah, in, in the book, as you mentioned, the kind of marriage theme, it's a, a, a sexless marriage largely. It, it, sexless marriage is a kind of interesting term because um, medically or whatever, it's, it's if you've had sex with your partner less than 12 times in a year, which I was really surprised when I read because I thought, well, that's not sexless. I mean, you're having sex once, once a, month, a month on average, right? which I think for lots of people in very, you know, long haul relationships, especially maybe if they've got kids or other pressures coming in, they probably think that was actually okay. You know, that, that's not a ridiculous amount of times to connect like that with your partner in a year. But yeah, so the, the book's kind of looking at that theme too, in the, sen in the sense of the kind of um, the bind that exists there, because um, ultimately, I mean, you're probably going to reach a point in a long-term relationship where if the passion fades or that, that desire fades, if that happens mutually at the same time, then you're kind of, you've, you've got it made, you know, you've got this life partner, you like them, you've got this beautiful history. But if they diverge slightly, then it becomes hugely problematic for at least one of the people in the relationship because um, you, you feel that something is not, not there that uh, was there before you miss it and you feel perhaps that you're in a bind because you can't pursue that anywhere else so you're thinking well what does this mean now so now for the rest of my life even though i'm walking around with a libido and feeling perfectly <laughs> fine about you know um having a sexual relationship with my partner but my partner no longer wants to um, I, I think it's a complicated bind that's even more complicated when children are involved. Mm -hmm. So it comes into this um, area of personal choice and uh, personal selfishness, responsibility and things. Do you, would you really walk away from everything you've got just because that one bit's missing? But what if that one bit is actually really important to you and part of your identity so yeah the, the book's definitely looking at that theme for mm. sure. and look I, I always think and I have this conversation with a lot of people I think that you know like you said marriage is wonderful but it's painful and it's mundane and it's disappointing but it's comforting and it's all those things and I think you're right that if two people at the same time think it's painful and mundane that's when you know the trouble starts but I think if if you can sort of push through that and then you get to the next level. You know, obviously I'm not talking about relationships that aren't good for you. I'm just talking about your everyday long-term relationship. But it's interesting that, you know, I think you get to a certain point in your life and go, oh, that's what marriage is. Sometimes it is boring and annoying and disappointing. But then other times it's really comforting, like you said, and that, that domesticity can be comforting or it can be wonderful or it's nice to have that companionship. So marriage is all of those things wrapped up and that's why it's so complex, isn't it? It's really complex. It's such a complex relationship. And I was talking to somebody just socially about this the other night that um, when, when a couple goes out, a couple that have been together for a long time, um, and something happens, like basically nobody would notice there's any problem there whatsoever because the, the, it might just be a slight look or a slight inflection of the voice. 
that, that has been built upon literally thousands of, if, if that's one matchstick, it's built upon <laughs> thousands and thousands of other matchsticks. And that tiny little adjustment of an eyebrow or the way your partner stood up or sat down or whatever it is, <laughs> has this, this meaning and this resonance that can really affect you. And you know, nobody would notice that that's going on <laughs> because you've, you've kind of built up, everything's codified between you by the, you know, even if you don't talk to each other for two years, that, that itself is a code because it's a, it's still an ongoing relationship with all these, yeah, day after day laid upon each other, you know? Mm. I loved um, Alain de Botton's book, The Course of Love. And I love how he said, we're really good as a society in, at falling in love, but geez, we're not that good at staying in love. And I thought your book captured that exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the trick, isn't it? But I think it, it's maybe as well, um, you know, what, what we mean by staying in love, you know, what's realistic. Because, mm. you know, like, like probably anybody that's been married a long time, I've, I've read all the articles about ways <laughs> to kind of spice up your romance and things <laughs> with your partner. And, you know, they, they kind of seem good, but the, it comes back to this idea of in, entrenched patterns, you know, if if the entrenched pattern in your relationship is that you're not going to follow listicle articles about how to improve your relationship, then that strategy is just not going to work for you. So, you know, you can't necessarily go to your partner and say, Hey, we're having a date night every Tuesday and we're going to get <laughs> tackles and we're going to see a film. You know, it's, it's just complicated, complicated to taco uh, Tuesday in a film. That sounds amazing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> why does nobody else ever want to do it? No, oh my God, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. And especially when you throw kids into the mix, particularly little kids, I mean, date night, what's that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the most romantic thing when you've got especially young kids is giving each other five minutes to like, scoff down some oh, yes. interruption. That, that's Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, my God. <laughs> you've hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, just the, the Alain de Baton thing that you, you mentioned, you know, I think that pressure to kind of feel like we should be in love and what that kind of love should look like is one of the disappointments almost in a way that couples need to get beyond because essentially it's a bit of an illusion right it's mm. only, you're not going to feel, you're not going to be cracking up with laughter in the in the way you were when you first met your partner necessarily or you know things things become very familiar so the the tragedy in a way is that feeling of loss for something that had to be lost you know it, it couldn't it, it's not a failing of the relationship that you're no longer in your honeymoon period 10 15 20 years into it yeah you're totally right and if you look at films and literature and I'm, I'm talking mainstream here and fairy tales i mean that's what they focus on they focus on the meeting and the falling in love like every rom-com you have they don't well unless you go to an indie film or read polly but there's not a lot of mainstream films i think they're improving now you know, that talk about the, well, what happens after, you know, 10 years and two kids later? I mean, I think it's, it's starting to get there, but I think all the fairy tales that, you know, I grew up with was what you just lived happily ever after. Like how easy is that? Yeah. Well, well, funnily the, you know, the epigraph on the book is and they lived happily, happily ever after. <laughs> yeah, uh, I saw that. <laughs> which, you know, just strikes me as the, it's kind of the most famous uh, and most misleading statement ever written. You know, we all know that line. And it's, it's a kind of pack up the circus quickly and leave, you know, we've got them to this stage 
like they're walking up the aisle. Every, oh, We're kids, done here. There's a dancing bear. Okay, they lived happily ever after, you know. But yeah, that that part afterwards, I think, is really interesting to explore. It is something that we could all benefit from, you know. To again, to come back to that idea of consolation, you know, if if all we ever watch is the people walking up the aisle and saying they're living happily ever after we kind of feel narratively like in our lives that 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 was the important part um, mm-hmm. and who wants you know you want to live as if your best days are ahead of you not as if you know you get out your wedding album again <laughs> that's it we're past uh-huh. it we're done <laughs> yeah every time you tuesday you get your wedding album back out and, <laughs> and i actually did some research about you know divorce in our country and your characters are in their 40s i mean your, your female character she actually turns 40 and I thought it was really interesting that in Australia, people are most likely to get divorced in their early 40s. So I'm thinking, what happens then? Is it because you've had kids and they're a little bit bigger? Or I don't know if you have the answer, but I'm wondering, what is it about the 40s that, that encourage people to, to separate from their partners, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, basically you, you know yourself pretty well or you know yourself enough to know that you're not going to change massively anymore. You know, you might pick up a new skill or or whatever but look basically you're set in stone roughly uh, basically roughly that doesn't make much sense but um, <laughs> I, I think they, you're old enough to have seen what's likely to happen but you're still young enough you've still got a fighting chance at least you know you, you've still got your 40s you can make a run for it you know, <laughs> you, know by your, by your 50s, you could you could have kind of you know, made made the right choices or something. Still got a fighting chance at 40. I love that. (laughs) I think you do, you know, at 70 as well. But I think the psychology is kind of, um, the the psychology is, you know, I I need to make a move here. and Now or never. And able, you know. Yeah, no, I I thought of that as well, actually. And there's also a lot of humour in the book, and I I love the quote. This one particularly just cracked me up. It said, um, you know, Chris said, I I texted a selfie of me getting changed, and she immediately, Biddy, immediately replied, hot, whereas he sent the same picture to Sarah, his wife, and she replied, can you get some bread on the way home? (laughs) I just thought, oh, my God, you just captured that perfectly, you know, beginning of a relationship, in the middle, yeah, great. And then just get to the domesticity because we need some bread. <laughs> it's actually, it's one of the hard um, kind of realities, I guess, of seeing more than one person concurrently. You, you, um, it takes a little while to stabilise with that stuff because, you know, if you were single and you met somebody and they, they're just like, you're absolutely fantastic, you, you can convince yourself as well. You can be like, well, that's right, I am fantastic. But having that constant kind of, oh, I'm really not fantastic. Oh, no, hang on, I am fantastic. And, you know, it's, a, it's, um, it, it's proof that it's that the beauty's in the eye of the beholder, basically. Mm, no, it's, I really like it. It was very realistic and very funny. And it's also an exploration of masculinity too and what it, what it means in our context today. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That's definitely one of the themes. Um, it's something that's always fascinated me. And, you know, I, I, I come from the northeast of Scotland and um, grew up around, I guess, a certain kind of masculinity that um, I, I'm still comfortable around. I've um, always been around it really in my life. But I also really question it. I've seen so many 
um, so-called kind of big men uh, end up in very, very bad ways, very broken, very lonely. You know, loneliness is just incredible. And it's kind of this kind of lo uh, losing strategy or potentially losing strategy of trying to be the rock and actually nobody really is expecting you to be the rock except yourself. You're, you're self-policing and you're trying to be above um, emotion and connection and you end up in this um, horrible, the, the trajectory basically, unless you do something about it or just mellow with age is, yeah, it's, it, to me, it's a very sad trajectory. It's, it's not a winning strategy. Mm. So I, I'm really interested in looking at that. And I, I have two sons too, so I'm especially constantly thinking about um, trying, you know, it's, it's kind of it's like Russian dolls or whatever. So my, my relationship with my dad was difficult. So with my sons, you know, I'm trying to not be my dad, but then constantly thinking, am I being my dad? <laughs> and then constantly looking at them and just kind of trying to think and read and make sure not to be just absolutely mindlessly creating, creating kind of uh, unrealistic stereotypes for them, you know? Mm. Um, and it's actually in, in their case, really encouraging, you know, their generation, I guess, you know, li little kids, they're nine and 11 seem at this stage anyway, seem kind of just like a lot less rigid about, um, rigid about things, you know, it's, it's like the, their argument isn't going to be males versus females kind of argument, you know, they've kind of moved even beyond that. So, um, yeah, when, when I was filling out a form with my son and it had, you know, gender male or female and he was like, well, that's a bit old fashioned, isn't it? <laughs> and, I love that. And, and that doesn't come from me. I, that, that's not something I've taught them. And then they've come back to me and said, look, you know, we remember this. That was just in, in their mind, they weren't trying to make a political point about mm. it. It just seemed unusual. So things like that give me a lot of heart. But yeah, the the um, the generation of men I'm in, I think, is uh, is an interesting one because a lot of men have been brought up in a kind of old school way, um, and then grown up in an era where you know they they uh, hopefully you know start to kind of try and deconstruct that and. Um, you know, um, even myself, and this is this is a bit of a confession or whatever, but uh, uh, two, three years ago, when I saw the kind of, you know, um, um, what's the word? Um, oh, basically, you know, when people tweet, for example, and they do the hashtag, like, not all men, like I was gen genuinely kind of, uh, sympathetic to that at the time so you know I wouldn't do that you know I'm a guy you know uh, why, why are they saying why are they generalizing these people you know and it, it actually has taken quite a lot of work to uh, get to that point of saying oh well that's there's a very good reason why you know men do that women don't do it uh, I'm a man therefore you know this is something that men do not something that women do on the whole so um, I guess what I'm saying is all of that comes from a lot of work. It's not a, a natural position if you've been brought up in a different kind of paradigm. Uh, and so I think the kind of generation at the moment of men is fascinating for that reason, because it's kind of stuck, stuck between two gears of the, the instinctual wiring or the, the social wiring is, is outdated, you know, it's from the seventies or the <laughs> and the mind, hopefully if it's like awake and reading and looking at things, 
realizes that there's like a lot of work to do to even just get to the the basics as I, you know, embarrassingly admitted of thinking, you know, oh, come on, it's not all men, you know, well, it is all men, but it, it takes a while to get there. I think it's it's a really good thing to be able to change and evolve and learn in our opinions. You know, we can't sit here and say that we know everything, but if we're open to it and open to changing and open to saying, hey, I, I, I that wasn't, you know, right what I was thinking or wasn't isn't what I'm thinking now, I think that's how we how we do evolve. And I couldn't agree with you more about parenting in this generation. I actually think this is this is the chance for us to make huge changes in the world, you know, because how, like you said, a lot of men have been brought up, you know, with the the baby boomer generation and now we're Gen X, Y, whatever. And I think this is the, the chance that we have to really change the younger generation. And I know that's where my head is as a parent. I have one of each. And so I'm thinking of, you know, both perspectives and thinking about toxic masculinity and thinking about strong women and everything in between. And I think you nail on the head when you say this is, this is the moment, you know, I don't think it's a really important time to be parenting, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, I love hearing you say that too, Danny, but uh, that's kind of encouraging for me to hear that too. Yeah, I think it's basically a moment where um, hopefully, it's kind of like if you're ignoring it, you're deliberately ignoring it. So it's, it's the unconsciousness of so much, not, not all of the bias, because a lot of that just is there, but the unconscious social structures that were there if you ignore them now and you're a kind of thinking person i guess you're you're choosing to ignore them which i think is quite a big shift so um there's a path out or the start of a path out by at least acknowledging clearly there are issues here to deal with so let's let's start and if it takes however long it takes we, we still need to start that I just think it's so important to have these honest conversations. So they'll grow up just thinking that and knowing that that's just life. and They're all different people in the world and we accept and love everyone and judge people by their character. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm in furious agreement with you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, Paul, I need to ask you, why do you write? Um, so, well, uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> I don't really know because I um, I didn't come from any kind of writing background whatsoever. Um, I probably read three books between the age of zero and sixteen. Um, oh, wow! <laughs> I left I left school after basically taking magic mushrooms and sniffing tipex every day at fourteen and became a painter and decorator apprentice. So I was like working from fourteen. And then I fixed washing machines for a couple of years. And then for kind of, I'm not even sure what the reason is, but oh, I, I remember actually I was out, I was out fixing a washing machine and I saw um, these students coming up to the um, university in Aberdeen where I, uh, where I lived. And it looked really beautiful. It's a really beautiful old part of the city. It's called Old Aberdeen. And there's something about the light or their scarves or something just suggested something to me but it wasn't I'm going to become a writer or I'm going to go to uni but off kind of I guess off the back of that I signed up for an English lit night class so basically would work all day fixing people's fridges and microwaves and stuff and then go to this um yeah night class at a, at a local college to do to read Huckleberry Finn and Romeo and Juliet and stuff and that was literally the first time in my entire life I'd had any discussion with anybody about books. Uh, and I was really 
inspired by the the teacher Donald Cunningham to um I, I kind of I, I I honestly couldn't believe it so I was basically flabbergasted that somebody in the world existed that could be so into books and writing and and imbue it with a value of the, the same kind of value as you know fixing a fridge or something like that <laughs> and I guess just from that point and then you know cut a long story short I ended up going to university and studying English lit and South American literature so I don't know why the writing part, but definitely the love of uh, words and language and the possibility of books and the the contest of ideas and just the fact that there are other people in the world. It, it just felt like this, like the top of my head had blown off because I'd never been around anybody that had ever talked about books or writing. Um, and I guess, yeah, for, from there, from appreciating that and doing a degree and learning how to write essays and stuff, I... I just felt writing was something I, I wanted to do or get better at. And, you, you know, I still, remember when I started university, I, I wrote something for the writer in residence, a guy called, a novelist called Alan Spence at the time. So I wrote like a short story, my first everything. And really all I wanted him to tell me was, you've got some kind of talent, like just kind of bestow me with a sorting hat and it says, <laughs> you, you will be a writer one day, this is rubbish. And, you know, the, the piece was objectively absolutely terrible. It was the first thing I'd ever written. But he gave me these, you know, he, he wasn't cruel in any way. He was kind of kind with his feedback and stuff. So it, it, it's a weird thing in that you're everybody, or maybe there's some exceptions, but you have to be really terrible for a really long time at most things that are artistic, you know, music or writing or filmmaking or what, whatever it is. You've got to get. You've got to have somehow the ambition to get there, but then within that, you've got to go through all this like period of. I'm, I'm still going to do this. It's rubbish. I'm no. I'm still going to do it. It's really rubbish. You know, just continues being bad, 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 bad. So I, I, I don't know what the propelling force is that gets anybody, whether it's learning the banjo or, or writing, from the kind of idea to pushing through all the rubbish part, but. For, for whatever reason, I kept pushing through the rubbish part. And just by, by writing more and more and more, you get bored of all the, your bad writing. So you can <laughs> almost run out of all the bad things you were doing. I love that. You can run out of bad writing. That is inspiring. I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but you do. I think when you, lots of the writing I've done is feature writing in the past. And you, you can kind of track it. If you look back through stuff you've published or, you know, you've got in a diary or whatever, you can kind of track it. There's, there's all sorts of things you do at the start that just become really, really boring really quickly. Once, you know, you don't want to keep repeating the same trick. And it's almost like you've got to go through that. Like growing your hair long, there's always that bit, you know, when it's just past your ears. And you're like, this really isn't working, but just keep going. It's going to be a beautiful bob. You know, I love that. <laughs> That is the best analogy I've had. And that was such a beautiful answer too, Paul. But I loved your journey from, you know, leaving school and being a bit of a wayward kid to fixing washing machines to then becoming a writer. It's a great story. Thank you. <laughs> now, thank you so much for your time, Paul. I mean, Polly was intriguing, humorous, but most of all, it really spoke to me in its portrayal of love and marriage and relationships and, and what to expect and where to from now and, and how all of those things evolve over time and how we just continually strive to misunderstand them or strive to understand them. 
So thank you so much for that. And this phenomenal conversation, which I think in, you know, 40 minutes, we've, we've covered so much ground and I've got a few confessions out of you. And, you know, what more could you ask for? Yeah, thanks. I don't know. I don't know why I made all those confessions, but you know, <laughs> you've got some kind of magic thing going on there. <laughs> thank you again, Paul. Yes, thanks.